until the lion learns to write. Every story will glorify the hunter. That's an African proverb. And this is a Construction Monk podcast, and I am your host, <laughs> Jay Randall Ori. I am a spiritual director, a teacher of contemplation, and a carpenter. I um, practice contemplation. That's my Christian tradition. I also belong to the vineyard denomination. In case anybody's wondering, I'm not just a free-floating Christian. Uh, adrift in the sea of non-congregationalism. <laughs> oh. Anyway, morning guys. We are in the middle of a newer series um, called On Being Church. And today's episode, goodness, three, I think. <laughs> this one is called Governance. Hey, I'm excited today. We're going to get into some history lessons. Yeah. I've already started to share with you about some of the history of the church, how it's formed, how it's changed. Like we're talking about church, church culture, church structure, church organization. Like how has the church kind of changed through the centuries? What is the church meant to be? What did Jesus intend it to be? What was the first century church like? What's the 21st century church like? We're talking about all these things. Um, you know, one of the things that I would challenge you in is to consider the state of the church. And that's what this discussion is about, but I mean that more personally. Like the state of your church and the state of yourself as a member of the church and a church. You know... Um, when it comes to church, I just can't take a passive role. <laughs> uh, I love the church. I want the church to be the bride. I want the church to be a beautiful bride. And I want us as the church to be as much the church as we can, as much like the church that Jesus intended. So that's what we're talking about. So keep that in mind. And, you know, in all of this discussion... It's meant to lead to action. It's meant to lead you to consider the part you play in church. And at the end of the series, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to do something. But I hope all of this challenges you, not only just to think, but to start to become your part, as we talked about in the first episode, about being parts of a body, and every part must be functioning, healthy, for the whole body to be healthy. So today I want to talk about governance and I want to talk about some stuff that happened in the 4th century in Rome and in the church. Um, but I, I started with that quote, you know, until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. And I don't know if you've heard this phrase, the victors... Um, I was going to say to the victors go the spoil, but <laughs> that's not the one. Um, the victors write history, right? Like, the history as we know it is written by those who were on top, in power, in control, right? And so, um, it's interesting. Something happened, something major and significant happened to the church in the 4th century, 
Uh, I probably mentioned it before, but um, in 306, Constantine was declared emperor by his by his troops. He was a military leader, and um, I don't know a lot of this specific history, but he was. I don't know if he was the emperor of the whole Roman Empire, but he ended up founding East, the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Western Roman Empire did uh, go on separately. I don't know if there were two emperors at the time. I think there might have been. But anyway, 306, Constantine's declared emperor. Uh, and he did something significant for the church. And... Three, I think it was 313, he issued the Edict of Milan, and he made Christianity the official religion of his empire. So that, man, that was a big change. All of a sudden, the church was sanctioned by the most powerful government at the time, the Roman Empire. It was sanctioned. They, they actually, you know, got special status, tax-free status, which they, you know, the most churches enjoy still today. Interesting, uh, Constantine started that. Um, they got special privilege and special importance. And they, you know, at this time, they, the churches began to, to thrive under freedom. They began to build buildings and um, they, were, they began to be established, which, which was good. And that's not the most significant thing. And that did, like we'll talk about how that changed the church you know, even we'll talk about that in more detail. But in 325, Constantine assembled the Council of Nicaea. It was, as far as we know, the first ecumenical council in the history of Christianity. Christianity had only been a thing for a little over 300 years. And what was going on at the time? There was, you know, you remember Antioch, or you remember. <laughs> Um, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, remember he appointed, or he he set this new pattern of only one bishop over a church, right? And so that had really thrived. And at the time in 325, at the time of the Council of Nicaea, there were, there were around 1,800 bishops of churches, um, individual bishops. There was a single bishop for every church. But at the time. There was, a, there was some infighting going on over theology, over doctrine. There were different, um, there were kind of different regions of churches that had, and, and typically they, you know, they all, those regions tended to share similar theologies because just of lo locality, right? But there was beginning to form some differences in regions and in, in, within regional Christianity, uh, theological differences, and so there were some argue, there was some arguing going on, and so the Council of Nicaea was called in order to try to hash out um, theological differences. And you know, it wasn't just for the sake of theology, because as emperor Constantine was also charged with keeping the peace of the empire, and some of these disagreements were causing unrest. And if you if you don't know, it was against the law to 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 riot. It was, that was one of the main things that Rome declared, and it was the way that they kept law and order. If you, if a city rioted, it could be razed to the ground. I mean, you, everybody could be killed. I mean, it was, it was, 
considered a huge offense to riot in Rome. If you remember in uh, the book of Acts, when Paul comes to Jerusalem and he's there offering sacrifices at the temple uh, and and with some other men who had taken a vow, um, some Jews saw him and they, you know, there were rumors going around that Paul was teaching people to dishonor the law of Moses. And so, of course, he was teaching Christianity, but he was a dedicated practicing Jew. And so he had been, he had gone to Jerusalem to the temple to kind of just quell those fears. But some Jews saw him there and they recognized him and they they still felt like he was destroying Judaism. And so there was a huge riot and the Roman guards came in. Why? Not because they cared about differences in, in uh, Jewish theological thinking, but because rioting was, was a huge deal. And so they came in to quell the riot. And they grabbed Paul and pulled him out of the crowd when they realized, because the crowd was starting to beat him. So they actually saved Paul. But it was, again, it wasn't because necessarily they wanted to save Paul, but because rioting was a big no-no. And so they were coming in to quell the riot. Um, and the Jews attacking Paul that way took a big risk too, because they could have gotten in big trouble. Well, so, I know that was a little bit of a backstory, but so you have Constantine at this time not only just calling bishops together in an ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, in order to try to establish some uniformity of doctrine, but he was also trying to keep the peace as the emperor and as the military leader. So, 325, the Council of Nicaea. He, you know, he... uh gives an open invitation to all 1,800 or so bishops, but only about 300 show up. The Council of Nicaea, you know, all these bishops sat down and they tried to hash out a more uniform doctrine. This was the first time this had ever happened in the church. For the first 300 years, you know, churches all, they had the same letters, they had the Old Testament scriptures, (coughs) they had their bishops, but there was pretty much liberty for each bishop to lead his, his church. Um, other than one bishop over one church, there was no hierarchical system of order for the church as a whole. It was just a kind of a, it was kind of a loose collection of local believers fellowshipping together. You know, this is why Paul writes the letter to the church in Corinth. There wasn't the first Baptist church in Corinth, and then the, the first Methodist, and the second Episcopalian, and the, the you know, Holy Mother of St. Jerome Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, it was just the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the, you know, the church in Philippi. Uh, it was just the church. There was just the church. Um, but around the third century, or uh, that would have been the fourth century. I always get that confused. In the fourth century, you have differences, and we even see, you know, some differences in the New Testament, in the first century church, where uh, there were some differences over the distribution of food to widows. Uh, there was there were some Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic just means kind of Greek, and they there there was the sense that the, their widows were being neglected. So there were some already some divisions ethnically in the first century church, and the twelve apostles appoints the seven to deal with it. One of those was. Stephen, one of those was Philip. 
Stephen later stoned. Philip later we hear about in Paul's missionary journeys. When he visits, uh, I can't remember what city. I want to say Caesarea, but I'm not sure. And his it says it just says Philip was there, and he, he had four daughters who prophesy. And that's where Agabus, uh, was it Agabus, prophesies over Paul about what's coming in Jerusalem. I talked about that in one of the episodes from Hearing God. Um, and the one about suffering. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that there are differences, right? Differences in theology that have grown up over the, you know, the last over the first three hundred years of the church. It's been going pretty strong. But you have then at the Council of Nicaea, you have three hundred bishops come, and they're called by Constantine. They're called to to try to set aside differences to try to establish some uniform doctrine so that you know Constantine's main focus is quelling unrest he calls this council they all come and they sit down and they hash out an orthodoxy this is the first time that a more universal orthodoxy is established now this is this is really significant guys until that time a bishop was, right, I mean, we talked about the, you know, Jesus and Paul really had this idea of a multiplicity of elders leading the church, right? But, you know, an elder wasn't capital E, a bishop wasn't capital B. It was just like, hey, who's the most mature in this church? Get together a group of mature believers here to, to help lead the church. Well, what does it mean to lead the church? It doesn't mean that you're in charge of something and, you know, you're collecting money and building buildings. It was just like a group of Christians. And who's the most mature? Let's get those people together. Those are the elders. And their their job is to mentor less mature Christians, right? And then I talked about this in the second episode where it's really just, it's kind of a relative, to, to be discipling, the model of discipleship is relative because the only factor is maturity. And there are people who are, always more mature and less mature and so you're always being discipled but you're also discipling and this is kind of the the main function of local bodies at the time is just hey there's some elders who are more mature and and they're raising up others to be more mature and those are you know it's just this this continuing cycle of people growing more in Christ and so that was the main function of the church at the time but then with the council of Nicaea these you know of course um um, oh, I keep blanking on this name. <laughs> Ignatius. Ignatius uh, institutes this idea of one bishop. So now there's this change. Now there's this one guy leading the church. But then all these bishops get together in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. And now it's like there's this motivation and this movement to establish an orthodoxy. Right? And on the surface you could say, you know, yeah, we get it, right? Imagine today. I mean, the word ecumenical means um, participation between different different churches. So I am very ecumenical, which means I'm I really don't say, oh, I'm just this kind of Christian. I, you know, I really would say I'm a I'm a vineyard Christian. I'm a contemplative Christian. I'm also a Methodist Christian, a Baptist Christian. I mean, um, I am um, 
evangelical in some ways. I just like, uh, I'm a hodgepodge, and we all really are. But, so, this is the first time at the Council of Nicaea that they're coming together, different bishops, and they're trying to hash out some, some universals, a universal orthodoxy. Like, before that, the, each church just kind of was led by a bishop who tried to teach Jesus as best he could and, you know, hopefully raised up other leaders underneath him to help do the same. But now we have this Council of Nicaea. Now we have this ecumenical council. Ecumenical just means people from different churches and different, maybe, understandings coming together. So... It's interesting to me that they came together as diverse churches and this ecumenical council, which means for differing churches and differing with differing beliefs to, to find, it means to, to find unity, to create unity. Like this ecumenical council came together for the purpose of unity, but what it created was uniformity. What they did was they hashed out a universal orthodoxy for the church. It's the first time this has ever happened. The first time anybody has said, hey, we need to have a universal orthodoxy, a more universal orthodoxy. Um, and again, like, keep in mind, there's only 300 bishops here out of the 1,800 or so that exist. So there's over 1,800 churches at the time. Each has a bishop. Only 300 bishops come when Constantine says, hey, let's get together. Let's try to quell this unrest. These 300 bishops forge and force out a more universal orthodoxy, right? I mean, it makes sense. They're trying to create unity around theology. But what they end up doing is creating uniformity. Um, I don't know if I'll sit on this idea too much, but like, Scripture is pretty clear. Where does unity come from? It comes from the Spirit, Scripture says the Spirit is a, a spirit of unity, and we are unified through the Spirit. Well, that's a relational center. Like, the center of unity, I would say, scripturally, is through a relationship with God. You know, scripture says the Spirit says to our spirits, we are the sons of God. I don't see any idea really strongly presented in Scripture that we are supposed to be unified through doctrine. Now, there's a scripture that says, be like-minded. But again, we take like-minded. We, we've There's some scriptures you can take to say, oh, we should all believe the same. But then there's scriptures like Romans, which says, Romans chapter 15, which says, um, the, the mature ought to bear with the weak, but not for the sake of arguing over disputable matters. Like, like you really see, I think, in the New Testament, this idea of unity through relationship, not through theology. Like, hey, we all have the Spirit, and we all are choosing to be a family. Like, a family isn't unified by everybody believing the same thing. Like, my, if, if my, I have three kids, and I have a wife, my wife doesn't always agree with me. She doesn't stop being my wife. I don't kick her out of the family when she doesn't agree with me. And, and she doesn't kick me out. I'm, I'm not a patriarchal you know, toxic masculinity guy. And that's just, um, 
right? Like there's no idea in my family where I'm kicking people out when they disagree with me. Now, my kids are younger and when they disagree with me, they might get in trouble, <laughs> but that's different. Like if my kids grow up and, and one kid decides to be Catholic and, and their theology and another one of my kids decides to be Methodist and another one of my kids decides to be Episcopalian, I'm not going to excommunicate them from the family. Like a family is not built around right thinking. It's built around right relationship. Like, hey, no matter what you think, no matter our differences, no matter sometimes how you act towards me that isn't in ways that aren't good, we're still family and we're going to what? We're going to work it out. We're going to stay together. We're a family. We, we are just by the nature of being a family. We are going to stay in relationship with each other no matter what. Like the center of a family is a relationship, not truth. Well, orthodoxy means right thinking. Right thinking, like in the third century, you have this shift towards right thinking. And I don't know if you've ever heard me talk before, but like Western culture is grounded in intellectualism. Out of the Greek, Greek culture kind of had this new idea of, of moving away from superstition and mythology towards intellectualism, like towards the mind. And so it's natural that in Christianity, we're moving towards, in early Christianity, they were moving towards having right a right thinking about doctrine, like just a natural progression considering the culture they were in. And there were universities that taught rhetoric. And rhetoric was just like how to win an argument. Greek philosophy was growing, which was, you know, how to found ideas rationally. And so you have the church in this environment trying to found its ideas rationally. And then you have some infighting over who has the right truth. And you have this council of Nicaea where they come together. And at this time, there was this lightning bolt this stake in the ground, this this new thing, this foundational thing that happened in the church where, you know, for good or bad, it was decided the church was going to be centered on right truth, not right relationship. Well, what was going on was the relationally between local churches, like from one local church to another, there were some infighting about theology, of course. So because right thinking is growing in its prominence. And this, as far as I understand, this is more regional. Certain regions had had certain ways of thinking about Christianity had kind of started to grow regionally. And so there was a region over here of churches, maybe a collection of 50 churches here and there, kind of have these kind of views. And then there's another region of churches over here, and they have some other views. And like, if you think of, um, oh, what's that called? There's the, when you do the two circles and you see where they overlap and where they don't. There's a name for that, and I forgot it. It's just a diagram. There's a specific name for that kind of diagram. But, um, you know, just imagine these churches, like, they're looking at each other going, well, we view, see, we believe this, you believe that, and maybe there's a lot of overlap, but there, in some ways there's not. And so then there begins to be this contention. Like, well, hey, wait a minute. One of the, um, one of the strains of doctrine was uh, Arianism. And it was not the idea that white people are, su are superior. That was, that was Hitler's Arianism. Arianism in the 4th century was a group of churches who were non-Trinitarian. There was a group of churches in their doctrine who didn't believe Jesus was God in the sense of being non-created. So, this council gets together. 300 of the bishops get, get together. They form a universal orthodoxy. Now, all of a sudden, there is 
there is an accepted orthodoxy for the church for the first time in its history. In 325, Constantine calls them together. He calls them to attention. They salute. They, all, they say, yes, sir. He's like, you guys got to get your stuff together. This infighting, it's not acceptable. You need to hash, your, hash out your differences. There's a lot of things going on here. I don't want you to miss the significance. One is, for the first time, the church has decided to center itself on right thinking, on orthodoxy. The church just became a lot more institutional in this moment. Because an institution is founded on ideas. A family is founded on relationships. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I and the Father are one. You, you should be one as we are one. And I and the Father will make our home in you. Like he, he didn't call God the principal or the CEO or the supreme leader or the emperor. He called him the Father, meaning, hey, we're a family. And he called us, he says, I no longer call you a servant. I call you a friend. And he also said, we're joint heirs. Scripture says we're joint heirs with Jesus. We're like, he called us sons and daughters of a king. Like there's a family relationship here. Jesus, every, all the language in the New Testament is very organic. It's family, it's family oriented. All of a sudden in the third century, the church takes this huge step in a direction towards an institution founded on right thinking, orthodoxy. For the first time in the history of the church, you have universal orthodoxy. And you have the idea that the church should be unified through truth, through right thinking, not through truth as a person, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of unity, right? All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, as the center of the church gets shoved to the side and in the Holy Spirit's place gets put orthodoxy, right thinking. Now, to be fair, it doesn't mean people didn't think the Holy Spirit didn't need to be involved in right thinking. So, but it's still a significant change. But here's the other thing to note. Who called the council? A political leader who was not a bishop, who was not involved in church structure, church leadership at all. He called the churches to attention. And they, they came to attention and they said, yes, sir. He said, you, let's do this. They said, yes, sir. What happened in that moment beyond right thinking coming to the center of the church was a political leader exercising authority over the church. Not only had Constantine adopted Christianity as an official empirical religion, he nationalized it. Now he's put himself above the church. Now he's put the church under a political authority. And the church at that time, was like, yeah, this is great. I mean, they really thought Constantine was like this God-given leader. And I'm not saying he wasn't, but like, they were like, this is great. The church has power, money, and, and the might of Rome behind them now. Like the might of Rome, the might of Rome for the first 300 years had been used to persecute Christianity. All of a sudden, now it's in the hands of Christianity. And there, the bishops are looking at Constantine, and Constantine's looking at the bishops, and they're going, hey, we like each other. 
hey, you've got political power. We're in charge of individual churches. This could be good. This relationship, we could get something, you could get something. And they forge this relationship that has forever changed and dominated the church, which, which is that the church and the state were meshed together and blended. There was a lot of benefit for both. But keep in mind, now Constantine is in a sense a political leader and a, and a spiritual leader now. And if you look at the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, every single emperor after Constantine was both the spiritual and political leader of the country. It was a theocracy in many, many ways. The emperor was was founded by God and you had and and in in the european monarchies it, this was called divine right kings were seen as divinely appointed by god and don't miss that god picked this person to rule your nation now do we still think of, of it this way today we think of presidents we like to see presidents who are Christian because it's like, oh, God's appointed them as the leader of our nation. Like this is when, but the first time this happens is with Constantine, where there's this idea that God, God has appointed. And of course, there are scriptures that you know Paul says all authorities, all governing authorities, are appointed by God. You know, now the, when he was saying that the governing authorities were persecuting Christians, and so I don't think he was saying or trying to point to what happened in the third century with Constantine and ever after. This idea of this divine this divine emperor, this divine national political leader as also a spiritual leader. But that's what happened. Now Constantine is really the leader of the church. The power of the church. He's he's not a theologian, he's not a bishop. He's not leading the church literally. He's a Christian. Now he, he's in authority over the churches. And the churches are submitted to his authority. Why? Well, because it gives them power too, right? And so at the Council of Nicaea, uh, this orthodoxy was established. One of the first things that they do is they kick out th five bishops. Like, as soon as they say, this is the way we should believe, the next natural step was, and you guys are kicked out. You're excommunicated. You are not considered a part of the church anymore. Well, wait a minute. Who, who, who established the church? Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Who decides who's a Christian? Jesus, the Holy, through the Holy Spirit. Nuh-uh, not anymore. Now the Council of Nicaea has established universal orthodoxy, which means now we have a lit, litmus test for who's Christian. Whoa. I mean, this is so huge in the church. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if you believe in your heart that, that God has spoken to you through the Holy Spirit, that you are Son of God, which is what Scripture says. Now all of a sudden, Oh, you say you're a Christian? Well, here's official orthodoxy. How do you line up? Oh, crap. How do I line up? And, okay, well, like, say you got some really rebel Christians out there going, well, I don't care about your orthodoxy. And they're like, oh, yeah? Hey, Constantine, what do you think about people not following the universal orthodoxy? Um, yeah, we can imprison those guys. Yeah, we could. we can bring the might of the Roman Empire against them. Sure. Wait a minute. The church just entered into this relationship with, with an emperor thinking, oh, we're going to be protected from perse the persecution we've experienced. And what's the next natural step? Is all of a sudden now the church is in bed with an emperor and using that p political power to persecute 
Christians. Holy cow! Persecution didn't end for the church in the 4th century with the Council of Nicaea. All that happened was now the church itself became the persecutor of Christians. And that's been true ever since. The Catholic Church persecuted all kinds of Christians. It was There were no non-Christians, in, in essence, during the Middle Ages. You were a Christian. You, you just were born into it. So every person that was persecuted by the church or by the state was a Christian being persecuted. Now, you know, there were crime, you know, just civil crimes and, and all kinds of other things. But like, man, so much happened with the Council of Nicaea. Now you have the church able to exercise its influence over the political powers and use them to enforce this orthodoxy. And they do. The first thing they do is kick out five bishops. And one of the things they decided was that Arianism was heresy. That's what happens when you, when you establish orthodoxy, you get heresy. Why? Because now you have a litmus test for belief. Now you have a litmus test for Christian, for being a Christian. And now everybody that doesn't line up and dot every I and cross every T is a heretic. And what do you do with the heretics? Well, at, at least you kick them out of the church. At worst, you kill them. Both happened. Arianism was considered heresy. And so... Um, Constantine, to his credit, realized there was a lot of there was this large section of churches. I think it might have been around the Ethiopian area. There was a large section of churches that were Arian, and he was like, "Oh crap!" He got the council back together, and he he tried to resolve these differences because he just didn't want to persecute that many churches. But dang, all, uh, all the other churches did, and eventually that particular theological perspective of non-Trinitarianism was banished. It was called heresy, and it has been considered that ever since. I mean, you may be listening to me going, well, of course, the Trinity. Well, not in the fourth century. There were different opinions. There were different views. Was Jesus created or not? Was he a God or the God? Now, I'm a Trinitarian. I see that in Scripture. But, again, understand the history where the church has been. In the 4th century, there is this huge, huge shift in the structure of the church. It did so many things. It changed so many things. It put the church in bed with, with government. It put government, it gave government control over the church. It gave the church power. It gave the church the ability to organize an orthodoxy to start to say who's Christian and who's not based on a set of written down ideas and right beliefs. It gave the church the ability to start calling people heretics, kicking people out of the church, even killing people. Man, so much changed for the church. And the biggest thing is it shifted the church. It shifted the center of the church from relationship to right thinking. From truth as a person that we're in relationship with to truth as a set of rational ideas that we're in relationship with. And the church forever after has been more centered on right thinking than a right relationship with God. That is huge. And what has been the result of for me, of centering the church around right thinking. Division. 
it was slow at first. I mean, the Catholic Church, as it grew and formed, I mean, this was the first big, you know, this was the first big um, founding moment of the Catholic Church because now you have a universal orthodoxy. Now you have the power of the Roman Empire. Now you have this order and the ability to exercise this order. And the church really formationally or institutionally gets really solidified. So, the, But the Roman Catholic Church, you know, is the church mostly. There was the Eastern Orthodox. You know, Constantine eventually founded Constantinople and Byzantium. And, and the Eastern Orthodox Church remains a lot more mystical under Constantine and further emperors. The Roman Catholic Church, it was, it, it from the Council of Nicaea, really got this flavor of institutionalism. And it is very, very institutional. And so for the next thousand years or so, you could say the Catholic Church maintains a fairly ordered institution of Christianity. But with the Protestant Reformation, the idea of centering the church on right thinking explodes. And everybody's go and once the Catholic Church no longer has the ability to kill you when you don't agree, once the, once the cat's out of the bag, then it's like division just runs rampant, right? Because, because centering the church on right thinking is right for division because we're never going to all agree on everything. We're never all going to agree to think exactly the same way about what it means to be a Christian. And so division just is a natural result of trying to center, trying to center a church on a uniformity of thinking. You don't... You don't get unity through uniformity. That's oppressive. Do you understand how uniformity is oppressive? If you don't think this way and believe this way, you're not a Christian. Well, who says? I say. Well, who are you? I'm the Roman emperor. I'm a Eastern or a European monarchy. I have the power to kill you. Oh well, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. Sure. What, 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 what was the quote I started with? Until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. Right? Those in power write the history. Those in power decide what's right. Those in power in the church decide what we believe. If you don't agree with it and you take a stand, you'll die. Until Martin Luther. That was true. This just changed so much about the church and how it was structured and what it was centered on. Um, I want to go to some scriptures. That was a good history lesson. I just I want you to hold that as we continue to talk about the structure of church and how church is formed. And, you know, in your church you would say, well, well we're not in bed with the state. Oh, really? What, what party does your church favor? Mm. In your church you might say, well, we're not kicking people out. For orthodoxy, you're not. So if you're a if you're a, a Baptist, you're okay with with uh, Catholic theology in your church. No, okay. Well, hmm. well, we're not killing people uh, because they don't believe. Well, okay, but you're kicking people out, and you're treating people in a way that can cause real harm because you don't have the power. We don't have the power to kill people that don't believe like we do anymore, but we have the power to hurt people, to isolate, 
to insulate, to exclude. I mean, I've experienced this. Anytime I express different views in a church, anytime I'm not in line with any local body's orthodoxy, well, I'm a heretic. What do you do with heretics? They're dangerous. Why? Because we've got to all have a uniformity of truth. Okay, well, let's look at the church today. All over the world, is there a uniformity of truth? No. What is the, So what happens when you center the church on uniformity of truth? You kick people out, you excommunicate people, you isolate, you divide, and then what? Oh, the church, look at how many Christians there are in the world. Oh yeah, but can, you, can we get along? No, of course not. They don't believe like me. I'm a conservative and they're, they're liberal. I'm a, I'm a Republican and they're a Democrat. We don't get along. Well, where's the unity? Oh yeah, the church is unified in Jesus. We all believe. Okay, well, let's hang out together. Nope. Nope. No way. Because, well, okay. Hey, Baptist preacher, bring a Catholic priest to teach in, in, in your church one Sunday. No way. They might lead people astray. Why don't you both follow in Jesus? Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, then what's the problem? Well, they might lead people astray. Astray to what? Well, they might teach them to think, uh, you know, all that crazy Catholic stuff. Okay, so where's the unity? Oh, we're unified through truth. Really? Wow, doesn't look like it. <laughs> we've, we've lost the spirit of unity. Um, why? Because we've lost the thing that unifies us. Because the church is no longer truly a family. It's an institution. It's an institution that tries to act like a family sometimes. And sometimes is like a family. When, when the rubber hits the road and you don't believe like your congregation, find out what happens. Find out how quickly you get excommunicated because it's not a family because families don't kick each other out. Okay, sometimes. But generally speaking, like even if you kick a family member out in your mind, there are there is division in family. Right? They don't stop being family. They're just now estranged family, but they're still family. Right? But you still know the basis of family is relationship, and your disagreements were generally relational because they weren't treating you well or vice versa. It wasn't that they, you know, sometimes there's divisions over thinking, of course. But again, a family is just formed differently. It's centered on something different, it's centered on relationship. It's not centered on right thinking. Nobody in a family says, we all got to think alike. And dang it, if we don't, there's going to be problems. No. We all need to, have, to be like-minded in the idea of how we should treat each other. I think Christianity is more about being in right relationship with each other and God. Are there some truths that speak to that reality? Yes. But relationship and mental truth are two different things. Mental truths can inform our relationships, but they're not the essence of our relationships. You can't have a relationship mind to mind. It's a part. It's not the whole. Okay. I better get to some scriptures. <clears throat> I want to talk about what I think scripture shows us is the true structure of church. Okay. Oh, that was a, that was a lot. So Ephesians 4, I've already read from Ephesians 4 in the first episode of this series. But I'm going to read it again. 
And he, the Holy Spirit, gave some as apostles, some as prophets. I'm sorry, this is Ephesians 4, starting with verse 11. And he, the Holy Spirit, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of Man, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Dang, Paul's wordy. Woo! What the heck? He's saying... There are leaders in churches with different spiritual giftings. What's, what is the main purpose of those leaders? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. Well, what are the saints being equipped for? For the work of ministry. What is the ministry? For the building up of the body of Christ. What does it mean to build up the body of Christ? Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So here's a great idea of organization in the church. There needs to be mature elders, spiritually gifted with a diversity of gifts, who are equipping their congregates for ministry to build up the body of Christ so that everybody will be mature. And it says to attain unity of the faith faith in a person like unity is one of the results oh my gosh there's a cow somewhere beyond the tree line that sounds like he's dying <laughs> just ignore that i'm sure he's fine he probably just has a cold <laughs> but this is really cool so i want to pair this with jesus great commission but just keep in mind here's a really good way to organize the church Mature elders who are spiritually gifted as prophets, evangelists, apostles, pastors, teachers. Um, some have the gifts of healing. Some have the gifts of administration. Like there is this multiplicity of mature elders leading the church for the purpose of equipping the saints so that the saints know how to disciple others into Christ. That's the basic paradigm. And if you flip over to Matthew... This is this is this was Jesus' commission to the apostles. I would say his commission to every Christian. I don't think anybody would dispute that. He this is Matthew twenty-eight, starting in the middle of verse eighteen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I command you, and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. What is every Christian supposed to be doing? Making disciples. What does that mean? Making disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name, baptizing, immersing them in the character and spirit of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like getting them immersed, like getting them mystically and genuinely connected to God so that they can know God intimately, so that they can become mature and like God. And there is this there is this cycle and this circle. Picture at the top mature elders who are spiritually gifted. And they are pouring into their congregates. They're equipping the saints. And those saints are being equipped. They're being discipled by mature disciples to become disciples. And what are they meant to be doing? Going to all the nations. They're meant to be going out wherever they go. As they go to work, as they go to the grocery store. Now they're disciples of Jesus, they're being equipped to make more disciples, and those disciples then get reconnected into this body of Christ, 
who are, then they're being equipped by elders. And what? guess what? Those, those disciples that are equipped by elders, they become elders. And there's this upward mobility, spiritual, spiritually speaking, of elders who are really mature and spiritually gifted, creating other elders who are spiritually mature and gifted, who create others. And this is the cycle of discipleship. Discipleship is about being in relationship with people. Being in, us being in relationship with God and then passing on that relationship to others. It's so relational. So relationship is at the center. Is good teaching a part of that? Yes. Is some church structure a part of that? Yes. We do need to have a multiplicity of mature elders who are spiritually gifted in local bodies. Throw in the Council of Nicaea, throw in Orthodoxy, and you see a church shifting from discipling towards, well, who believes the right way? Now a church is, now the church becomes insulated in a way of like, okay, well, who can I allow into my church? Now there's control that comes in, and with control, power, power, the ability to enforce belief. The church shifts radically in the fourth century into this institution that's focused on right truth and who's in and who's out and who believes right and who doesn't. And yeah, the church should be teaching people to believe right, but they're also enforcing right truth. It's not just, hey, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to walk beside you. I'm going to help you grow closer to Jesus and help you become strong in the spirit and become relationally connected to God. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is, do you think the right way? Do you believe the right way? Well, who decides? The bishop of your church, the pastor of your church. Well, who tells him? His denomination. Well, who tells them? There's usually a pope. There's usually a president. There's there go whatever church you belong to, whether it's just non-denominational, local, organized locally or organized nationally, somewhere go to a webpage, somewhere there's a statement of beliefs. I belonged to a church one time where, you know, in my journey with Jesus as a mystic, I reached a point where I didn't agree with some of, well, I, it was, it was, it appeared that I didn't agree with some of the main missions or uh, belief statements of the church. And my view was like, that's fine. My pastor's view was, I don't think so. I don't think you should be. Oh, here's a good story. He was like, I don't, I don't think you should be teaching. Maybe you shouldn't even be here. Um, I, be, I, I belong to a, it was my parents' church. It was when I was in college. And um, no, 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 no. It was, it was a church that my friends went to. And I went there sometimes. And gosh, I'm trying to remember. I was involved in helping lead. I think a college age group. And they had a Halloween party at the church and people dressed up. And I dressed up as an angel. And I walked around and people would ask me, oh, which angel are you? And I would say, Israfel. And they were like, I've never heard of that angel. And I was like, yeah, it's not in the Bible. It's in the Apocrypha. And the next time the church elders got together, they had a conversation about what kind of Christian I was and whether I should be leading in their church because I was aware of extra-biblical texts. The Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha are not considered the Bible, 
by mainstream Protestant churches. Now, the Catholic Church includes them. Because I, I didn't even say I was, I was teaching those things. I just mentioned the name of an angel that's mentioned in the Apocrypha, Israfel, at a Halloween church party. And the next time the church elders and pastor met together, it was like, well, who is this guy? He doesn't seem quite right. Why does he know about the Apocrypha? What is this thing called the Apocrypha? Who the heck is Israfel? And I was like, oh, it was just, it was just a cool name, dude. There was suspicion cast over me because I had information and knowledge and understanding outside of the scope of this church and what they thought was proper. And they got together and, and they were discussing, should he be leading in the church? And one guy who actually knew me stood up and said, I know him. He's a good guy. He's fine. And it was like, okay. What happened? Somebody knew me. There was a relationship, right? They were like, oh my gosh, this, this sounds dangerous. Maybe we should kick him out. Certainly he shouldn't be leading. And this guy was like, no, he's good. He's fine. Oh, okay, okay. Whew. Wow, there's a, so much There's so much fear around right thinking. Who's thinking right, who's not? And who should we allow in our church? And who should we allow to teach in our church? And who should we allow on stage in our church? Just fear, fear, fear. And fear leads to abuse. Fear leads to killing people in the name of Christ who say they're Christian, but they don't line up with your orthodoxy. And so they got to be dealt with. They are going to hell because they don't believe right. And so, and we're going to send them there right now. Bam. Wow. Is that the gospel of Jesus? Is that, that what Jesus said? Hey, did he get together with the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day and say, his, his day and say Man, guys, you know, we need to really reform this church. Uh, let's start killing people that don't think right. No. He was like, hey, you people who, who excommunicate and kill and put down people that don't think like you. Let's cut that out. Let's lift up the poor. Let's embrace people in their spiritual sickness and poverty. Man, Jesus was humble. Jesus walked with the people that the religious leaders thought you shouldn't even be around. He was called a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. He hung out with the wrong people because he was a part of a religion that thought it was about being the right kind of person, and the right kind of person was defined by believing the right things. And here we are today, 2,000 years after Jesus, and we look a lot more like the Judaism he came to protest than the Christianity he came to institute. And in the 4th century with the Council of Nicaea, an emperor called the church to attention and the bishop said, Yes, sir. And they said, Hey, we like you. Can you please kill some other Christians for us and kick some other Christians out? And let's establish an orthodoxy. And let's get some institutionalism in here. And let's put truth and right thinking at the center of the church instead of the Holy Spirit. And that change, that huge dynamic shift in the church in the 4th century forever changed the structure of church. It's why church is the way it is today. It's why you think that your pastor needs to tell you what to believe. It's why church leaders think if you don't line up with the official doctrines of their local or national church organization. You probably shouldn't be in their church. And hey, there's another church down the street. 
go there, or I don't care where you go, but please don't be here anymore. There is no ability in that paradigm for people to be growing and letting God lead them into truth. <sighs> Maybe I'll try to end with this. Like, Let me try and picture it this way. Imagine you're standing in a room looking through a window to a nature scene outside. And on the window is a grid. And the grid is a like really crazy. Like there's all these squares. You know, you've seen the grids on windows. So usually there's like six squares. Imagine this is a huge picture window, like a big lodge, and this window is huge. But there's all these tiny grids. Each grid, let's just say each grid is four inches by four inches, which is maybe the size of your hand if you make a fist. So you're looking through all these grids, right? Beyond the window and the grids is a scene. Let's just say you're only looking through one grid. And let's say that scene behind is like God. You're looking through a little box, and that's what you think God is. And that's all you've ever known of God, this box. And so through this box, you can see a tree and you can see a deer. But it's like it really narrows your view, right? Behind the window is the scene that you could say is expansive and vast, unending, infinite. The universe is always expanding, right? Even though you can't see everything. Behind the window is God. God is infinite. But you're looking through a box. Let's say you step back a little bit and you see there's a box to the, to the left. And you look through that box. Now you've got these two boxes and you're like, well, I thought God was just that deer in that tree. But now I see through this other window, I see that deer. But I also see to the left, there's three other deer. And then you step back and there's more squares around. So now I'm taking in there's 12 squares. I'm stepping back. I'm stepping back. I'm seeing more squares. I'm looking through. Like now I step back far enough that I see the whole window and I see this much bigger scene. Now I'm seeing more of God. And that's amazing. Like each box can represent a church or a way of seeing God. But then there's this grid of all these different ways to see God. And then guess what? Beyond the window is God himself who is infinite and vast. And no, none of these boxes capture all of God. Even if you put them all together, they still wouldn't capture the vastness of God and who he is and his truth. And so... At least you sh we should understand that every box contains a part of a picture of God. Every box could be, you could think of it as a local church. You could think of it as a theology, as a denomination. Let's put the boxes together into a grid that forms a much bigger picture of God. And then, and then here's what mystics do. Mystics get this idea that maybe we could actually float through the window or somehow get outside of that building and actually go and experience the scene. Get in it. Experience it. God is a person we can actually experience. We don't need to stay in this house with all these grids looking through the window at God and seeing all the different boxes, but now we can actually go outside and start to walk and touch and feel and taste and experience. That, <laughs> that's a cool picture. That's not only ecumenical, which means unity among a diversity of churches and theologies, and orthodox is, it's also mystical, which means unity with a person. Like, unity is the essence of the Spirit of God. God wants to unify us with Him and her. Don't get hung up. The Holy Spirit, I just refer to the Holy Spirit as her. It's okay. Don't freak out. <laughs> like, not only does God want to unify us together as individual Christians, even as individual denominations, God wants to unify us with Him. God wants us to be unified 
with each other and with him. Unity is the goal. Unity is a relationship. Unity is relational. Unity isn't do we think the same. That's uniformity. Unity is can we be in relationship with, with each other regardless of differences and similarities. That's unity. And that happens through the spirit of unity, which is the Holy Spirit. Man, that's huge. That's huge. Like, let me just put it this way. When I meet other Christians from other denominations with other thoughts, I'm excited. Hey, how do you see God? Man, that's so cool. I never thought about that. Oh, I'm reading a book about Christian contemplation. Or I'm reading a book about Christian Lutheranism. Or I'm reading a book about Christian Episcopalianism. And I'm reading a book about Christian Catholicism. And this is exciting. This is cool. I'm learning more about God because, why? Because God isn't that one box. Fear leads us to say, I've only seen God through this one box and that's God for me. And don't tell me there's other boxes because that's heretical. My orthodoxy is this box. This is how I see God. And someone else can come along and say, well, there's another box. Don't know. That's heretical. That's scary. I've learned to believe and see God this way. And I'm just going to hold on to this box. And it's scary for me to think that there's more of God outside this box. Why is it scary? Why is that scary? Hey, is it scary to learn more about God? No. As long as it's from my pastor and my church and my denomination and my accepted theology. Whoa. That's a lot of fear. Why? I'll tell you why, because a person has to tell you what's right. And the person who isn't the accepted person who's trying to talk about God and it's not a way you understand, that's scary. And they could be a heretic and they could lead you astray. And you could end up going to hell. Well, yeah, that is kind of scary. But what if God was our teacher? Okay, what if we could hear God And God could teach us truth. What if the spirit of truth could lead us into all truth, like Scripture says, and we have a relationship with the spirit. And so when we're listening to individual people, no matter what background they're from, we have the spirit saying, yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. Or think about that some more. Or let's talk about that. There is such an intimate conversation that goes on when we can hear God, when we can trust God's ability to lead us into truth. We don't have to be afraid. Fear leads us into a box, a congregation, a theology, an orthodoxy where we have to call people heretics because we have to know the right way to heaven because we don't want to go to hell. Fear leads us to a box and to control. And what? We trust the people telling us what's true because they are the way to heaven. That's fear. The truth is a spirit. And when we're in relationship with God, we can swim in much bigger waters and listen and, and hear from God, not just through this little box, this little church box, but a movie, a book, uh, an actor, all different places in nature. We can begin to see and hear God everywhere. And God can begin, God can tell us if something's not right, and we can trust God to tell us, and we can trust the relationship. And now we've gone from a person as our shepherd to the good shepherd, Jesus, who said he would never leave or forsake us, who told us to make disciples, to try to inculcate people into a relationship with God, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, like he did for his disciples. Why? The uh, the inaugurating act of the church was 
Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, this relationship being restored. It's all about relationship to the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd is not your pastor or your favorite theologian or your favorite spiritual writer or thinker. The Good Shepherd is Jesus. All right, we're going to talk more about that. But man, sorry to go long, but I want you guys to think about an institution versus a family, about orthodoxy, about, about right relationship with truth versus right relationship with the person of God and other people. I want you to think about all these things as we continue to talk about what it means to be the church. Hey, I love you guys. This has been a Construction Monk podcast. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com or Google J. Randall Ori, and you might see my book. You might see my YouTube channel. Love you guys. Bye.